Hello, everyone, and welcome to the January 28th edition of WarCop Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and let's get started with our litigation report. The Mervyn's Delaware Bankruptcy Court ordered adjudication of a pending industrial claim to the California WCAB. The 2008 bankruptcy and default by the fallen department store giant on its self-insured workers' compensation insurance obligations represents the largest ever for a state fund that will assume responsibility for the claims. The California Self-Insurer Security Fund said that Hayward-based Mervyn's defaulted on almost $20 million in unpaid workers' compensation claims. The Security Fund, a nonprofit mutual benefit corporation created by the state in 1984, is designed to ensure that workers' comp claims are paid for workers in self-insured plans in the event of a default. In its 24 years, the Security Fund has assumed liability for $160 million in claims involving 64 defaults. The fund was ultimately responsible for $90 million in net costs after accounting for security bonds or deposits posted by the defaulting organizations. Prior to Mervyn's, the last big default was National RV in late 2007, leaving $3.5 million in claims and $5 million in security deposits. In the Mervyn's bankruptcy case, John Navroth II was an applicant with a pre-bankruptcy industrial injury. He was attempting to recover directly from the bankruptcy court in Delaware. Navroth claimed damages for injuries from a work-related accident. The initial bankruptcy claim was for physical and emotional suffering and demands for a payment of vacation, sick, and personal holiday time. Navroth also filed a statutory workers' compensation proceeding prior to the commencement of the bankruptcy case. Navroth then amended his bankruptcy claims against Mervyn's with allegations of employment discrimination, interference with contractual relations, and interference with prospective business advantage. The amended claims increased Navroth's total bankruptcy claim to more than $21 million. The bankruptcy court ruled that the amendments to his claim were untimely and therefore void. Claimants only timely filed claims arise out of his industrial injury. Bankruptcy courts have discretionary authority to abstain from ruling on cases that can be decided in other tribunals. Abstention will limit the necessary tribunals to one, the California Workers' Compensation Board, in the state proceeding. Without abstention, the estate could have to litigate in two courts an obvious burden and waste of judicial resources. The initial claim, which is the sole remaining claim, raises only California workers' compensation law. Thus, the bankruptcy court ruled that in this case, abstention is the proper choice. The court entered an order dismissing the omitted claims and abstaining from hearing the initial claim and thereby deferring to the state WCAB proceeding. Johnson & Johnson, which is fighting more than 10,000 lawsuits over its recalled hip implants, is negotiating a potential settlement with patients that may eventually total more than $2 billion. Lawyers for hip recipients have so far rejected the offer as too low. In 2010, J&J recalled 93,000 all-metal hips worldwide, including 37,000 in the U.S., 
saying that more than 12% failed within five years. Patients who sued contended they suffer pain and are immobilized by joint dislocations, infections, and bone fractures. They alleged metal debris from the hips causes tissue death around the joints. The settlement talks probably won't end until after the first trials of the lawsuits begin, starting in February with more set up through May. J&J is facing about 10,100 suits over the hips. Most pretrial collection of evidence has been consolidated in federal court in Toledo, Ohio, where about 7,000 cases are pending, and California state courts in San Francisco, where more than 2,000 cases are filed. Other cases have been filed in state courts around the U.S. The three cases going to trial in the next few months may offer lawyers guidance on potential liability and damages. The first proceeding starts in state court in Los Angeles. The second begins in state court in Chicago, and a third is slated for May in federal court also in Toledo, Ohio. The Los Angeles court trial involves a lawsuit by Lauren Kronoski of Montana, a retired correction officer who got an ASR hip implant in 2007. He had the hip replaced in February of 2012. Claims by 65-year-old Kransky include failure to warn, negligent recall, and manufacturing defect. Kransky's case was chosen from those pending in the California Judicial Council coordinated proceeding before Judge Richard Kramer in San Francisco. And now our regulatory news. The Sonoma County District Attorney announced that the resolution of a case involving the removal of a safety device from a tractor that killed a vineyard worker. The defendants pled no contest to a misdemeanor violation of Labor Code Section 6425, which prohibits removal of a manufacturer's safety device. 61-year-old James Poole of Windsor was sentenced to 30 days in jail and 80 hours of community service work for an organization dedicated to worker safety. Additionally, Vino Farms Incorporated was ordered to pay restitution and fines totaling $200,000. The single misdemeanor charge resulted from an OSHA investigation, which revealed that the victim was working alone at a local vineyard on a tractor that had its kill switch removed. The kill switch causes the tractor's engine to stop running and moving forward when the driver leaves the seat. OSHA investigators concluded that when the worker tried to get out of the tractor's narrow opening, his clothing was caught, and without the kill switch operable, the tractor moved forward, pinning him beneath it overnight. The victim survived for several days before the injuries he sustained resulted in his death. OSHA discovered that Vino Farms Incorporated's manager, James Poole, had ordered the safety device removed from the tractor seat. As part of the plea agreement, Vino Farms Incorporated agreed to pay restitution to the family of the deceased victim in the amount of $100,000 and be placed on probation for two years. The company was ordered to pay an additional fine in the amount of $75,000 to the state of California as well as $25,000 to AG Safe, an organization dedicated to worker safety. An additional penalty in the amount of $75,000 was suspended pending successful completion of probation by Vino Farms Incorporated. 
Farms agreed to change some of its procedures to comply with worker safety laws and to strengthen some of its policies to ensure that its workers will be able to get emergency help when working alone. The State Labor Enforcement Task Force ordered two Southern California garment businesses to stop any work with dangerous equipment until the employers can ensure the equipment has the appropriate safeguards. The task force is a multi-agency group formed to combat the underground economy. The state claims that Vin Lowe Incorporated, a garment contractor with 26 workers employed at two locations in El Monte, had an industrial fabric cutter with improper safeguards to the cutting blade, as well as the belt and pulley. The task force also said that Canary Incorporated, an El Monte denim washing business that employs 22 workers to dye and stonewash jeans and other garments, had nine of its 11 industrial washers removed from service by Cal OSHA until the proper safeguards in the belt and pulley workings on the washers are reinstalled. Two of the same washers were not equipped with interlocks to prevent movement of the washer drums while the door is open. A worker was crushed to death in 2011 after falling into an open operating washing machine with missing interlocks at another denim washing shop in Los Angeles. Department of Industrial Relations Director Christine Baker, who oversees the task force, said that employers are required to ensure that their equipment is safe for workers to operate. Vin Loy Incorporated is also under investigation by the Labor Commissioner's Office and the Employment Development Department for labor law issues, including cash pay and overtime, as well as possible payroll tax violations. The task force includes investigators with the Department of Industrial Relations, Division of Labor Standards Enforcement, and Cal OSHA, as well as the Employment Development Department, Contractor State License Board, the Board of Equalization, Alcohol, Beverage, and Control, and the Bureau of Automotive Repair. The California Applicants' Attorneys Association Winter 2013 Convention just concluded at the San Diego Sheraton and Marina Hotel. The focus this year was about navigating your way through the comp system since SB 863. Panelists on the first day of the event discussed medical controls and MPNs, as well as discovery and the rights to privacy. It was not unexpected that panelists anticipate constitutional challenges to the validity of some of the provisions of SB 863. The same view was expressed by panelists at the Employer Fraud Task Force presentation earlier this month. It is not clear who or when this, who or when this challenge will take place, but the consensus is that the theory will involve the constitutional requirement for due process of law. Simply stated, there is a constitutional requirement for a dispute resolution mechanism that provides notice and an opportunity to be heard. The challenge to SB 863 will claim that the independent bill review and the independent medical review process does not achieve minimum standards of due process of law. The constitutional argument theorizes that the two administrative procedures do not allow claimants or the employer the ability to argue their case before the decision maker in either of these two administrative processes. And since there is no effective right to appeal before the WCAB on matters of expert opinion, 
the administrative process falls short of the constitutional requirements. Panelists also discuss the discovery and privacy rights that changed under the new law. The provisions of Labor Code Section 4903.6D now says that medical information cannot be sent to non-physician lien claimants without written authorization from the WCAB. The WCAB orders must specify what is to be disclosed and a finding that it is relevant. There will be a greater emphasis now on protecting the privacy rights of injured workers. From the applicant standpoint, subpoenas that request any and all records would be overbroad and subject to petitions to limit that discovery. Effective January 1st, the California Workers' Compensation Experience Rating Plan 1995 was updated to reflect new experience rating values to be utilized in the calculation of experience modifications effective on or after January 1st. The new values include expected loss rates, which are updated every year, and revised primary credibility and excess credibility values, which are updated every few years. As a result, some employers will receive lower experience modifications than otherwise would have been the case, and some will receive a higher experience modification. Additionally, experience modifications for individual employers change from year to year based on a variety of factors such as changes in payroll, changes in claims, and overall changes with the employer's industrial classification. The need for regular updates to experience rating credibility values was one of the findings of the Insurance Commissioner's 2008 Experience Rating Task Force. Since then, the WCIRB has routinely reviewed experience rating plan credibility values to ensure that the experience rating system operates fairly and efficiently. As the payroll and claims experience of California experience rated employers evolves, so too must the credibility values in order to maintain the experience rating plan's actuarial balance. The last change to credibility values was in 2010. At the core of experience rating is a comparison of an employer's actual claim costs to the average claim costs expected for the experience period of all employers of similar size and industry classification. As part of this comparison, the experience rating formula takes into consideration how much weight is applied to the actual claims experience of an individual employer. The weight, or credibility, in the experience rating formula is intended to reflect the statistical reliability of the employer's past claims experience as a predictor of future claims experience. High credibility means that more of an employer's actual experience is used in the experience modification calculation. For larger employers, actual claims experience is predictive of that employer's potential future claims experience, therefore larger employers have higher credibility values. The experience of small employers does have some predictive value in determining the potential for future claims, however their claims experience can be volatile and can be more of a function of chance. As a result, small employers are assigned lower credibility values in the experience rating formula. In 2012, the WCIRB proposed and the commissioner approved changes to the credibility values based on an actuarial analysis of the most current individual employer loss and payroll experience available at the time.
Consistent with this most recent experience, the credibility assigned to most employers' actual claim history increased slightly, effective January 1, 2013. The adopted January 1st changes in credibility values are modest, and their impact on 2013 experience modifications is also modest. And now, our fraud report. A former Fresno County District Attorney's investigator was ordered to pay restitution after he pleaded no contest to a count of felony grand theft. As part of his plea deal, 46-year-old John Harding Swinning of Kingsburg was ordered to pay about $24,000 in restitution for investigation costs after he improperly received workers' compensation benefits following a work-related injury. In 2009, Swenning made false statements to an investigator to get surgery from his workers' compensation carrier. His lawyer, Roger Nuttall, said Swenning exaggerated symptoms so he could get surgery and return to work. Swenning is eligible to have the felony count reduced to a misdemeanor if he makes full restitution. Federal prosecutors have revealed the elaborate details on the inner workings of an international medical fraud ring. The international healthcare fraud ring started to unravel when an Ohio gynecologist called investigators after receiving insurance payments for male patients. Ultimately, two California ringleaders went to federal prison, but not before making off with more than $13 million in Medicare payments for non-existent medical services. Karen Chilean and Edward Aganasan are serving eight years and 11 years, respectively. Remaining culprits are at large and have been placed on the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services' most wanted list. The case illustrates a common health care fraud scheme. These people were involved in an Armenian criminal network that billed Medicare for more than $48 million using the stolen identities of doctors and patients from Ohio and 39 other states. The bust was part of a nationwide sweep in 2010, which 73 people were indicted in New York, Georgia, California, and New Mexico. Federal prosecutors say this is the new face of organized crime. The group ripped pages straight from the medical fraud playbook, executing what federal investigators called a dropbox scheme. Here's how the scam worked. Chilean, Organisan, and others in California first stole doctors' identities, finding most of the basic information on the Internet. The hard part was getting Social Security numbers, although those were available on the black market. They then leased office space in Canfield, Ohio, and claimed that it was occupied by those doctors. They also set up an empty storefront in Columbus for the gynecologist, along with other businesses in other states. After registering the businesses with the state, scammers then registered each fake company with the federal government as a medical provider. The next step was finding patients. Again, they used identity theft. Scammers often call senior citizens, pretending to be with Medicare, and they ask for their information. And just like that, they were in business. They then laundered the money. By the time investigators shut off the money faucet, Chilean, Aghanistan had billed Medicare for more than $48 million. 
And in medical news, a new study shows that 20-year-old legacy workers' compensation claims are responsible for a higher percentage of claim medical costs. That percentage has been growing and might continue to grow in the future. The study by NCCI looks at workers' compensation medical services provided beyond 20 years after an injury. Key findings showed that in these older cases, patients are predominantly male, more so than can be explained by historical gender differences in the workforce. Deteriorating medical conditions of the more elderly claimants was not a main cost driver. Indeed, claimants younger than age 60 cost more per year per claim to treat than those older than age 60. Care provided during the later years of the case has a significantly greater proportion of costs going for prescription medications, supplies, home health services, and the maintenance of implants, orthotics, and prosthetics. The study compares the share of work comp medication costs for several specific drugs. The shares for opioid chronic pain medications, such as oxycodone and fentanyl, are generally higher within the late-term care group. The shares within the late-term care group for muscle relaxants, however, were substantially lower. The specific medications given late-term provide a further indication for the shift in focus from treating the loss of function to relieving pain. As U.S. healthcare goes high-tech, the widespread adoption of electronic medical records and related digital technologies is predicted to reduce errors and lower costs. But a Cornell University ergonomics professor in two new papers says that technology is also likely to significantly boost musculoskeletal injuries among doctors and nurses. The repetitive strain injuries will stem from poor office layouts and improper use of computer devices. Alan Hedge, professor of human factors and ergonomics in Cornell, says that many hospitals are investing heavily in new technology with almost no consideration for principles of ergonomics design for computer workplaces. He saw a similar pattern starting in the 1980s when commercial workplaces computerized and there was an explosion of musculoskeletal injuries for more than a decade afterward. The most commonly reported repetitive strain injuries were neck, shoulder and upper lower back pain, with a majority of female doctors and more than 40% of male doctors reporting such ailments on at least a weekly basis. About 40% of women and 30% of men reported right wrist injuries at a similar frequency. The gender differences appear to be in part because women reported spending about an hour longer on the computer per day than men. And in other news, Kaiser Permanente Southern California announced that Sang Manarajan, MD, has been appointed Regional Chief of Occupational Medicine for the Southern California Permanente Medical Group. In his new role, Dr. Manarajan will lead Kaiser on the job. Kaiser Permanente's employer-based injury care health program. In addition, Dr. Manarajan will coordinate an integrated approach to care with Kaiser on-the-job physicians, associates, and healthcare professionals, providing other non-injury medical services including pre-placement and post-placement job examinations, fitness for duty and return to work examinations, Department of Transportation examinations, among other medical screenings and services. 
Dr. Menor Rahan will be responsible for the 19 dedicated occupational health centers located within Kaiser Permanente's Southern California facilities, many of which are located on Kaiser Permanente campuses. Nationwide, Kaiser Permanente has 74 dedicated occupational health centers throughout California, Washington, Hawaii, Oregon, and Colorado. For the past five and a half years, Dr. Manarahan served as Chief of Occupational Health Services for Kaiser Permanente Downey Medical Center. He will now be working closely with Dr. John T. Harbaugh, who is the Occupational Medicine Physician Director of the Southern California Permanente Medical Group. Dr. Harbaugh has provided leadership to Kaiser on the Job since 2001. And with that, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or iPod by searching for the WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.